Well, we love these holiday weekends. Labor Day weekend just gives you that extra kind of sigh, that extra time of release, extra time of rest. Most of us know a little bit of the history of Labor Day in our country. As the Industrial Revolution was gaining traction in the 1880s, it really started in communities and cities where people said, hey, let's give the workers a day off. It then gained some traction and some of the states started doing it. And then in 1894, Grover Cleveland, our president, made it a national holiday. And it becomes this holiday now that we look forward to. We celebrate it. It's a time of doing different things as family and friends, cooking out, hanging out together, just being together is all these celebrations. And what we're really also looking at is this transition from summer to fall. We recognize, too, the rhythms of life and work. We feel the stress, the anxiety, sometimes the confusion that comes from just pounding away at work. And we give this day of rest, this extra day. We think of probably some of us have been reading about this uh, quiet quitting You've been reading about this, some of the people just saying, hey, I'm going to work hard, I'm going to give it all, but I'm quitting after X number of hours. That doesn't mean they're walking off the job, it just means they're tired of giving that extra pound of flesh because we're looking for a healthier rhythm of life. And so what we want to do is ask the question, is there a better way? Does God have something to say about work-life rhythms? And so that's what we'll be exploring this morning. If you have your Bible, could I encourage you to open with me or a device where you can find Psalm 127. Want to look at that as you're turning there and finding it on your device. Psalm 127 is what we call a wisdom psalm. It's a psalm where God is wanting to help us live skillfully. He wants us to take our knowledge, he wants to take our abilities, and he's wanting to show you and me how we should walk with him. That's what wisdom is, it's skillful living. So if you're able to stand, could I invite you to stand for the reading of the word, Psalm 127, verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, The watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them, He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gates. Father, as we look at your word this morning, we we need to hear from you. We need your spirit to stir us. We need your spirit to work in our hearts and open our eyes. God, we want to see what you say about work and life rhythms. So God, we commit this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I don't know how many of you got to watch the Gator game last night. Of course, I married into a Gator family, so the Gators have become uh, more prominent in my football watching, and it was a great delight to see the Gators pull out a win over Utah 
last night, even though it was a hard-fought game. Well, there was a Gator coach a few years ago. He said this as he was speaking to some high school coaches. You don't win or lose football games with schemes. Schemes are overrated. I can show you people winning with a particular scheme, and I can show you people who are using the same scheme and losing. They're running that same stuff and losing. Scheme is a tiny portion of a coach's job. You win or lose in football with players and culture. What a profound statement there is. Of course, the schemes he's talking about are trick plays. And we see it, we see teams developing them, nothing wrong with them. It's just that if you're trying to develop your team and you want to really have a record of winning, you're not going to do it on trick plays and all these fancy schemes. That last statement, if you want to win, it's going to be with players and cultures. Now, that first part we all get. We understand that if you have a team of good players, strong players, players that understand the game and live it out, you're probably going to have a winning team with those players versus players that are weaker, undisciplined, and not really learning the plays. But it's that second word that he uses, culture. Culture. Well, we all know what a culture is. A culture is something that's made by people. It, it, it shows our values. It shows our purpose. It shows what really matters to us. It reveals characteristics. So we can think about family as a culture, right? We can start thinking about families that, that carry on in, in certain ways, or we can think about certain areas of the country that operate in certain ways. So for example, years ago when Kathy and I lived in Texas, Texas is a big football state. On Friday night, the high school teams are, are, are just, they've got stadiums that are as big as the college stadiums in the state of Illinois. And they would fill them, they would pack them out because the schools, the communities valued football and they wanted to have winning football teams so they put a lot of money, a lot of energy, a lot of drive into it. Well, families also have a culture, right? You can have a family that maybe is more bent into sports or you might have a family that really takes interest in theater or maybe a family that takes interest in arts, right? And, and they, they begin to take on a culture of their own. And they'll have their values, they'll have characteristics, characteristics of families that are kind with each other, families that are mean to each other, families that infight, right? You, you, you get these characteristics and all of this is part of the culture. But here's what's significant. In football, we know that it's the coach that primarily is the culture maker. In homes, it's the parents. Now, if you're in a single-parent home, it's the single parent that's the primary culture maker. And if you're single, it's you or your roommates that are the principal cultural makers. So, this morning, as we read this passage, it breaks out in two ways. The first is a principle. 
Solomon wrote this. As you know, Solomon wrote a lot of wisdom literature. He wrote Ecclesiastes. He wrote a lot of the Proverbs. And he wrote this psalm, and it's a psalm of wisdom. So the first thing we're going to see is a principle. The second thing we're going to see is if you live out the principle, it comes with a promise. So a principle and a promise. Here's the first. Home and work, apart from God, are vain. Home and work. If you try to live apart from God in your home, or you try to work apart from God in your workplace, it's all vanity. It's all futility. And so as we come into this Labor Day weekend, it's a time for us to kind of pull back as believers, as God-fearers, in a country that has increasingly pushed God to the fringes. And as I said last week, it's not only now that we've pushed God to the fringes, we are pushing God out of life in record numbers. So... As we think about this Labor Day weekend, we want to reflect on the psalm and what it says. And what he's saying, what Solomon is saying, is that we are foolish. We are not acting wise. In fact, we could say it this way. We are presumptuous to think that we can live life and we can do work apart from God. And yet, we see it all around us. So what happens in a culture like this, if you begin to live for yourself and you're pushing God to the fringes or out of the circle completely, is you start living for the weekends because that's where the life is. You got to push through the week of toil and angst and anxiety and stress and you look forward to the weekend or you look forward to the holidays like Labor Day weekend or you look forward to summer vacations or whatever and so we start putting an emphasis on this but what we see in verse 1 I want to drill down into this Solomon says says this in verse 1 he says unless a very exclusive kind of word unless the Lord builds a house right unless the Lord is the watchman over the city unless the Lord is guiding your life it's all in vain oh it may look good people may look at your life and say wow she is successful he is handling this well he's got all this together but from God's perspective it is futile now as we read this word house Probably he's not talking about literally building a physical house. If he was, we'd be in trouble, right? How many of us could strap on a tool belt, get some saws and hammers and whatever else you need to build a house and actually build it, right? He's not saying that the Lord's going to come and start nailing your boards. What he's talking about, what we call in our culture, is a home. A home is people. A house is things. A house is the physical building. But a home is people. It's a culture. It's the way people interact with each other. So when he says, unless the Lord builds the house, he's talking about unless the Lord builds the home. Unless the Lord is in charge of the relationships. Unless the Lord is the one guiding and providing right it's all vanity so when he uses the second phrase unless the lord watches over the city right 
in the ancient culture, they built walls around the city. They, they tried to protect the city themselves. And what Solomon is saying is, wait a minute, it's not only that God provides for the home, but God is the one who watches over the city. He's the protector, right? That's the idea of a watchman. A watchman is protecting. He's always there looking and wondering what's going on, except sometimes watchmen fall asleep. Sometimes watchmen don't see what they need to see, but our God isn't a God like this. Our God is a God who sees everything, and you know, and I know, our God never sleeps. He never slumbers. He's never distracted. He's never put off by anything. He's never pushed away from his responsibility. Unless the Lord watches over the city, we are in vain trying to make this protective work happen. So it's God who's our provider. It's God who is the one who is there. And what he's trying to bring home to us is it's futile. It's futile to try to live life and work apart from God. And yet, how do you know if you are trying to do that? Well, the very simple response, how much stress did you have this week? How much anxiety have you experienced? How much confusion has been in your world as you have tried to make all the ends meet? As you have tried to be the provider? As you have been the one trying to protect your home? The way you look is how much have I carried in my own life? That's why our culture's solution is quiet quitting. God has a better way. And his better way is to be focusing on the Lord. Let's look in verse 2. He says in verse 2, It's vain that you rise up early. It's vanity that you go to bed late, get up early, and keep that cycle going over and over and over again. He says, And go to bed late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Right? That's what verse 2, the, the, the anxiety that is there that we begin to feel, for he gives to his beloved sleep. See, what God wants us to do is to be able to cease from our labor. He wants us to be able to take a break. And this is a radical thought in this ancient culture. In the ancient culture, when Solomon wrote this, you worked seven days a week, you worked all day long, and it was up to you or you were going to die right? What God brings in and says, wait a minute, it's not up to you. I'm there to provide for you. I'm there to protect you. And he gives to the people he loves sleep. That's what he says at the very end of verse 2. He gives to his loved ones sleep. Sleep's a metaphor. And it's not the metaphor of death here. <laughs> he's not saying he gives to his loved ones death. What he's saying is, he gives them rest, shalom. Or could we say it this way? He wants to give us a change from the anxiety, the stress, the restlessness, and the confusion that is taking place every day of our lives. Now, as I think about this, I found myself thinking about Jesus Christ. Now, one of the amazing things about Jesus Christ in the Bible is that it gives us a picture of what our Savior did as he lived life here. So, 
Mark chapter 6, very interesting passage. We find Jesus, he travels to his hometown. His hometown is Nazareth. He travels there and he's teaching in the synagogue. And as he's there in the teaching mode and healing mode, people looked at Jesus and they said, is he the carpenter? That's how it's worded in Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Is he the carpenter? The carpenter with the the. They knew Jesus was a craftsman. The Greek word behind that is technon. It's someone who, who works with wood most often or is a craftsman. Now, sometimes it's also a word that's used for people that are metal workers. So there was some writings in about the third century where Jesus was described as making plows, hammering out metal and making these metal pieces. So that word can be that as well, but we really have understood Jesus as being a carpenter, taking on the trade of his father. Now what's interesting too is it says that the son of Mary, Joseph, as we know from history, is out of the picture. After a very young age, we see Jesus and his brothers and sisters, and we don't hear any mention of Joseph. And so what we begin to understand is that Jesus, as the first and oldest in his family, the son, he was responsible for providing for his home, for taking care of his home. Now let me just ask you, as anyone trying to provide for a home, isn't it normal to start thinking, can I sell enough chairs? Can I sell enough tables to bring in enough food or money for food? Can I make enough whatever needs to be done with craftsmanship? Right? These would be the questions of Jesus' life. And yet we know that he lived a life of being sinless. That is, he wasn't stressing. He wasn't wringing his hands. He wasn't confused. He was in a place, and we know this by the rhythms of his own life, right? He never broke the pattern of living out the law. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law. He said, I came to fulfill the law. Well, what does that mean? It means when he woke up, he spent some time in prayer. It means when he went to bed at night, he spent some time in prayer. It means that he was at the synagogue on Saturday, right? The Sabbath. Now, interestingly, when Kathy and I got to travel to Israel a few years ago, we were in Nazareth, and I was in one of the ruins of the synagogue in Nazareth. And now it wasn't the one Jesus was in because that one was totally destroyed. It was rebuilt about 300 years later, and that was the one that I got to be in, even though that one had just the walls there. But what was interesting was, I, I got to say, I really enjoyed this, was at the front of the synagogue, there's a little seat, the seat where Jesus would have sat before he got up to preach, before he got up to open up the scriptures. And I sat in that little seat there, looking out over the synagogue, and I started thinking of Jesus in Nazareth, hand, getting handed the scroll and beginning to lay out whatever passage that week and what we saw was that the people responded and said what wisdom this guy has what knowledge what command of the word he has well how did he get that he lived a life work rhythm that god laid out for him now what do i mean well he was in the sabbath or in the synagogue every sabbath 
That was his pattern. Why? Because he said, I came to fulfill it. I came to do what God asked me to do. There were seven feasts in the Old Testament. Jesus would be saying, I came to fulfill these feasts. Three of the feasts meant for the men to travel to Jerusalem, wherever they were, to travel to Jerusalem for some of them like eight days, meaning unplug for your work, Come to Jerusalem and celebrate the work of God. Come and understand what God is doing in the world. Come and put all this in perspective. And that's what the feasts do. The feasts of the Old Testament were constantly pointing to the Christ. And of course, Jesus is the Christ figure. He's the Christ. And so as he went through these feasts, they were times of rest. They gave his life rhythm. But most importantly, it does exactly what Psalm 127 is talking about. Jesus built his life in trusting God his Father. Keeping God at the center, demonstrated by his rhythms. So he wasn't quiet quitting with his work. What he was doing was living a rhythm of life, trusting in God his father. So whether he was in the home with his mom and his siblings, or whether he was in the workshop pounding out different projects as a craftsman, he was doing it unto the Lord. Colossians 3.23 says this, whatever you do, do your work heartily as unto the Lord or as for the Lord rather than people. Jesus had this God-centeredness about him because he knew he knew everything else was futile everything else was vanity after vanity now when we fail to build a culture of trust in our homes we open the door for anxiety stress confusion and restlessness, and you could just add to that list, when we fail to build a culture of trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we think of our homes, certainly dads carry a primary, primary responsibility for building that culture. It's so important that dads begin to see that they carry this huge responsibility. But they don't do it alone. They do it with their spouse to build this culture of trusting in God, building this culture of kindness, building this culture of love that we want in our homes that say we are Christ followers. Now, if you're in a single parent home, it's harder, but you can do it by the grace and power of God is God will enable you to do that, to live out this trust in God. Or if you're single, what kind of home do you want? What kind of context do you want? So that when people come into your home, even if you're single or you're living with some other singles, they come in and they say, wow, this home, this home is filled with peace. This home, remember home is relationships, exhibits kindness. This home shows hospitality. Grandparents, you have a great opportunity. Unlike any other time in the history of the world, you have this opportunity for your grandchildren to come into your home 
and experience a God-centeredness from a very different perspective where they can see how grandma and grandpa walk through life trusting in Jesus Christ and seeing what that would bear, what kind of fruit that would bear. So as I look at this and I start asking, well, how do you build this culture of trust? I think there's a couple things all of us can do. First one is this, stories, stories, tell stories. If you're a grandparent, tell stories of how God provided for you. Tell stories of where you were up against the wall and you wondered, how is this going to work out? And you, and you can share with your kids and your grandkids, you know, we saw God at the 11th hour come in and do this. Tell stories about how God brought you and your spouse together. Tell stories of what God has done in your life to change you and pull you out of sinfulness, to pull you away from bondage and break these chains. Tell stories. Not only your own story, but tell stories, find stories in the Bible of what God has done to deliver his people. Look at how God provided for Abraham. Look how God provided for Sarah. Look how God provided for the widows in the Bible. And you begin to tell these stories, these people that were trying to live like you and me, trying to live by faith that God would be honored and he would be uplifted. Tell stories. They re people remember stories. Then... Add to stories of grandparents and parents' stories so the kids hear them and you keep reminding yourself of those stories. Then find books with stories in there. There are so many saints, women that have trusted the Lord and we can learn so much from these women who just anchored their lives in Jesus Christ and God provided. And these stories are beautiful and there's so much being published today. And our kids need to be bathed in these great heroines of the faith through the centuries that have been there and walking with Christ. So many of these stories will share the weaknesses and the shortcomings, but then the perseverance and the steadfastness of these women. And of course, there's stories of men, these heroes of the faith that have pressed on and our kids need to hear them. And I would say, fill your home, fill your heart, fill your life with stories. I love stories. You love stories. And we learn so much from them. Here's a second, prayer. Prayer is such a place of dependence upon God. Now, Jesus warned against prayer that's just kind of mumbling and bumbling, prayers that are just words, meaningless words. Jesus said, don't pray like that. What Jesus said is, get alone with your Father, pray from the heart. Prayer shows our dependency upon God. And our kids and our spouses, our friends, need to see us in times of prayer. As we're wrestling with real-life issues, here's a third, people. Surround yourself with God-fearing women and men. All of us have people, but there are some people that are going to pull you away from God. There are some people, they may profess Christ, they may act like they're trying to do it, but when you get really down to it, they're not encouraging your own faith with Christ. We need people around us. That's why we come on Sunday morning. We need to hear what we heard last week, these stories of faith. We need to see God at work. That's why I love what Pastor Brad did this morning. Some of us just don't know whether to spit or whistle when he says, let's sit silently with the Lord. And what he's saying is we got to learn 
to tell God what's on our heart. So when Brad gives us some time and, and we sit, we listen to the Spirit, and all of a sudden you find out, you know what? I was stressed over this all week long. And God brings that to your heart, and then you begin to tell the story of how God frees you up. See, this, this is where we need people around us to help us, every one of us. Every one of us, myself included, we're going to stumble, we're going to trip, and we're going to fall. We need people to help get us up. We need people to remind us of the truths of God's word. We need people that will say, come on, let's go, there's the finish line. Because I forget, I forget what this is, life is about and that there's a purpose. And this is the culture that gets cultivated as we do that. So, three things, simple things. But now, let's look at the promise. The promise, blessing comes with God-centered living, right? The principle was number one, homes and work apart from God are vain, but blessing comes with God-centered living. That's what he does. That's what he's talking about when he's talking about the house and the city. Let's look at verses three, uh, four, and five. He says, behold, listen up. That's what behold means. Look, pay attention, drill down, Children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Now you see that word reward? That word reward is where I'm getting this idea of blessing. Is that God wants to bless. Now why is he saying this is children is a blessing? Well, certainly children are a blessing. But he's using the picture of a home. So it makes sense he would use the example of children. So if you're a couple here and you're not able to have children, he's not saying that you're not blessed by God. All he's doing here is giving an example saying that as we build God-centered homes, a natural flow here is this blessing. And in this case, the blessing of children. He goes on and says a little bit more. He says, uh, verse 4, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. What are these arrow, arrows? It's like the watchman. It's the protection. It's the place where children come in and they become the protector of the parents. Now we've lost some of that in our culture. Very different in the ancient culture. When the parent became too old and unable to work and they were unable they were getting weaker as their lives begin to break down their bodies begin to break down it was the children that would come in it was the children that had the responsibility of protecting it was the children that provided of course it's a little different today but don't forget there's still the command the fifth command honor your father and mother and I like to remind us that command was not given to first graders in Journeyland. That command was given to adults on Mount Sinai. And God was saying, honor your mom and dad. Honor them. So there's this call that God says to honor them. And then he goes, blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Blessed. There's blessing. Well, how does God blessing come? Well, when it comes to work, he blesses us with peace. Why? Because it's not dependent upon me to make everything work out. It's not dependent on me to protect every detail of my family. God says, trust him. And unless I trust him, it's futile. 
So the blessing comes with peace. I don't have to wring my hands wondering, how is this going to work out? I know how it's going to work out. God tells me how it's going to work out. That doesn't mean, when I use the word blessing, that everything's going to be easy, that there will not be any hardship, or that we won't go without. What he is saying, I'll be with you. Isn't that what Jesus said when he left this earth? Matthew 28, 20, I'll be with you always. That's a blessing. Anxiety? We don't need to do the quiet quitting. We can trust in the Lord and rely on him because he gives us peace. He takes away stress. 1 Peter 5, 7, he says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So this blessing comes and we find it so much and so often in an internal kind of way. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. See, Labor Day weekend is about the weariness, about the stress and anxiety of work. And Jesus is speaking to you and me right now. And he's saying, come. Come to me. Come to me when you're anxious. Come to me when you're stressed. Come to me when you can't figure out how this is all going to work out. Come to me when you're confused. Come to me when you're restless. There's this huge invitation. And look what he says. I will give you rest. I will give you peace. He goes on and he says, take my yoke upon you. In other words, do my work. Do it my way. Follow my path. Live in my wisdom and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And that's what the life of the Christ follower is. It's a woman that is seeking to learn to trust Christ on a daily journey so that we could learn from Jesus how he lived life because he felt the pressures, but he didn't cave in to anxiety and fear because he constantly turned to his father. Then he goes on and says, and you shall find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my load is light. Well, this morning, I want to go to the Lord's Supper with these thoughts in mind because what Jesus Christ is doing is he's inviting you and me right now. And he's inviting us to come. He says, come to me, all who are weary. Or as it says in 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called his children. Think about that, the love of God. In 1 John chapter 3, he's distinguishing you and me from all the other people of the world. It's true that the Bible does say that we're all children of God. But there is a unique, special, defined relationship for those who have turned to Jesus Christ. And he says, see how great this love is. And this love is so great as he's inviting you and me right now to say, come to me. Come to me. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. But as you reflect on this past week, 
Can you identify a time when you were stressed out? Can you identify a time when you were anxious? Can you identify a time in the last couple days when you were confused? And you're trying to make things work on your path the way you want it to work? A time when you're going to make something happen and you're going to double down as you get that gut-wrench pain and it's not working out? Can you think of a time in the last couple of days when you were just restless? I cannot be the only one here that can identify these times because it's part of life. And so with that, Jesus invites us. He says, come to me. And so on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it because his bread is a picture a picture of him, his body being broken in order to bring us back together in wholeness. It's a mystery of how this works out. It's miraculous in how God does it. So when you break the bread, Jesus then said, give thanks. And as often as you eat this, do this in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. That same night, he took the cup. I want to be delicate as I say this. When we don't trust God, when we have anxiety, or we have fear, usually there is a sin behind that, a sin of not trusting Christ. So I want to be careful how we say that and do that, but usually anxiety and fear and the stress and restlessness is a sign that we're not ultimately trusting God, and we need to repent of that and turn to Jesus. Repent means confess it as sin. Just saying, God, I am so sorry that I was relying on my own skills, my own abilities. God, I was trying to make it work on my terms. That's what we need to repent of. That's what we need to turn away from. That's what this blood is all about. There's a mystery here of forgiveness, a mystery of finding grace. If you have not repented, let me encourage you not to drink the juice until you get right with God. Because we're told over and over in Scripture, it's a sacred moment when we come with a heart of repentance, a heart of surrender, a heart of recognizing, I need a Savior. So on the night that he was betrayed, he took the cup and he blessed it and he gave thanks and he says, as often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. And now, Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, the power of your word. We thank you that you have not abandoned us, that you established a new covenant with us, that we are your children bought with a price, that you have a special affection for us, that you find us 
and love us and call us the beloved, that you give us a new identity, a, a, a child. You give us freedom. You have set us free from sin. You have set us free from bondages. So, God, we rejoice in that. We celebrate that. And all God's people say, amen. Can I invite you to stand? If you're able to stand, let's rejoice over what God has done.